leading up to the Protestant Reformation, Europe was going through and experiencing a renaissance or a rebirth of learning. There was during this time a renewed emphasis on education and knowledge. Universities began to spring up all over the countries. Cities were filled with areas of growth and learning, music and culture. One of the leading men of this renaissance was a man named Erasmus of Rotterdam. He was born into a Catholic family. His father was a priest, and therefore he himself was a devoted Catholic throughout his life. Early on, he was exhorted to a life of destitution and solitude as a monk. Ultimately, however, he would be freed from his monastic life, which allowed him to attend universities in order to further his education and knowledge. He was truly a man of profound intellect and knowledge, yet he himself was never understood to be a reformer. He had a tremendous knowledge of the things of God, yet he himself never applied them to his own life. Like Savonarola in Italy, Erasmus contributed to the reform or reformation by calling for moral reforms, not doctrinal reforms within the church. In one of his earliest works called In the Praise of Folly, he attacked the licentiousness and wickedness in the church known as the Roman Catholic Church. He gave himself to, the, to other work. And one of the areas he is known best in church history is for his work in writing or compiling a Greek New Testament. Greek was the language that the apostles wrote the, the Bible in, the, the, the New Testament. And he gave himself to compiling a completed Greek New Testament, for which then Bible translation could go on, and you could have Bible translations in English and German and Latin and so forth. His work would allow for many different people to come to know Jesus because they could read and have access to the Bible in their native tongue. He wrote this, I would to God that the plowman would sing a text of Scripture at his plow, and that the weaver would hum there the tune at his shuttle. I wish that the traveler would beguile in the tediousness of his journey with this pastime that all communication of the Christian would be of the Scriptures. For as you consider Erasmus' life, one of Erasmus' greatest problems was that he thought he could be good enough for God. One of the areas that he struggled with was, was it possible to do enough good deeds like translating the Bible? or compiling a Greek New Testament, or studying and learning, having tremendous knowledge, doing things for God, does that make you acceptable to Him? There were many things that He did that were praiseworthy, commendable, but did they merit salvation? This is one of the greatest tragedies when we consider some of these historic figures. They were so close to the things of God, yet they themselves 
missed out on the salvation that comes by grace alone and not by works. Though he had done such good and wonderful things and people came to know Jesus because of his work, even many of you today holding a King James Bible in your hand because of Erasmus's tedious and tireless work in compiling that Greek New Testament over 500 years ago. Friend, can you be good enough for God? Can you be good enough for God? This is what we want to consider this morning. Can you and I do enough good things in life to merit God's love, to merit salvation, to merit eternity. Now, just to catch us up a bit of where we've been, uh, this section of Luke's gospel is Jesus beginning all the way back in chapter 9 in verse 51, Jesus began to journey toward Jerusalem. And we find ourselves in the middle of this journey. And and as he makes this ascent up to the city of Jerusalem, this one last and final time, along this long and arduous journey, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to follow him. The heart of Luke's gospel, because he's writing to Christians, is about how to follow Jesus. The subject matter is that of discipleship. At the heart of it is a call to forsake your own way and to go God's way. Even going back all the way to chapter 9, we were told that Jesus commanded His disciples to take up their cross, to deny themselves, and to follow Him. And as Jesus was faithful to to exhort His disciples to faithfulness, so also the Pharisees we are are confronted with continue to confront Jesus' teaching. And so as the camera pans from the disciples back to the Pharisees and Pharisees back to the disciples, it's almost like a ping-pong match. Back and forth, back and forth we find ourselves. Last week we saw the camera pan onto the disciples for a moment as he warned them against the love of money by telling them a parable of a shrewd manager. And here we find ourselves again in verse 14 with the camera panning back upon the Pharisees as Luke makes this ominous comment. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16 if you've not done so already. We're going to be looking here at verses 14 through chapter 17 verse 10. Beginning in verse 14, Luke records that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. 
But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was, a, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from, from far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone could goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We'll stop there and we'll continue in a moment. Jesus here in this section is characterizing false and true disciples. He's helping His disciples by identifying the Pharisees as those who think they are close to God, but are rather false. And helps them, as we'll see in chapter 17, show the character traits that should show up in those who are following after God. In other words, we will see that followers of Jesus Christ are characterized by loving forgiveness, continual faithfulness, and obedient service. Whereas we see here in these few verses at the end of chapter 16, the characteristics of a false disciple. Characteristics of those who claim to be near God, but are actually far from them. And we see three characteristics of a false disciple. Number one, we saw there that a false disciple is self-righteous. Self-righteous. The Pharisees and religious leaders were plagued with self-righteousness. But we also see in verses 16 and 18 
that a false disciple is characterized by disobedience. Disobedience. They claimed to be near God, doers of the word, but they themselves were disobedient. And Jesus gave us an example of one area, namely divorce and remarriage, that they had compromised on. These conservatives were compromised. These uh, fundamentalists were compromised. They were willing to call out sin in others, but they themselves were complicit in this particular area of sin, of divorce and remarriage. And then we see lastly, in that final, ex- in that parable, uh, an interesting parable, and we'll consider it in a moment, that unbelief is characteristic of those who are false disciples. Well, let's consider these as we, as we think about them. First, with the parable of the shrewd manager in the background, Luke records this statement there in verse, verse 14. Look at it again. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. What an ominous title to put on someone. A lover of money. Jesus has just instructed his disciples that they cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees sort of, you know, eavesdropping, if you were, on the conversation began to ridicule Jesus because they loved money more than they loved God. They were guilty of breaking the first and second commandment. Uh, They had made money an idol in their life. And as we considered last week, their master was not the Lord, but their stuff. And Jesus, in His kindness towards these religious leaders, does not remain silent. Friend, we ought to see the mercy of God meted out, displayed in the reality that He exposes our sin. He does not ignore our sin, but calls it out. And this is what Jesus does. Notice what He says there. Verse 15. And He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, Jesus says, Your character is that of self-righteousness. You think that you are justified before men. You think because of your outward actions, everyone is impressed by you, but God knows what's on the inside of you. Self-righteous people want to display their goodness in front of others so that they can receive the praise themselves rather than God. And Jesus here is exposing their hearts like a surgeon. He begins to cut away at their self-righteous, justifying themselves before men. Notice what he says, but God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. They were doing the very thing that God hated, we are told in the, in the Old Testament. In the Ten Commandments, God hates idolatry. God hates those who worship other things. He cannot stand for His glory to be shared with anyone else and particularly with our things. They were those who were first, the most important, 
They were the ones that received the praises of those around them. They were the conservatives, these Pharisees. They were the fundamentalists. They were the Bible believers, after all. They weren't like the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, who denied the, the teachings of the Old Testament. No, these were the, these were the experts on the law. They could quote chapter and verse to you. So, friend, do not be confused and think that these folks were, were sort of playing fast and loose with their Bibles. You know, no, if you wanted to know your Bible better, these are the men who you went to to know and understand, and they would help and guide you. The problem with them that Jesus is exposing is that they were a facade. They were fakes. Yes, they would teach the Bible. Yes, they would proclaim the truth once for all delivered. Yes, they would do that. But inwardly, they were ravenous wolves. They were hypocrites. And God knew their hearts. It is a warning to us. I know you mean well when you say this, but let me caution you against doing this saying that you know your heart. Oh, you know, friend, you know my heart. You, you know, you know my heart. I know my heart in this. No, no, you don't. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked. It is desperately wicked. These men knew their Bible. They knew it. Yet they found justification in their goodness, in their obedience to rules, rather than the God that they pointed toward. They were self-deceived in their self-righteousness. So not only is self-righteousness a characteristic of those who are false, but we see also here, so is disobedience. It is fascinating, again, that Jesus here, speaking to the the experts on the law, Uh, he was speaking to lawyers, he was speaking to those who knew the law, memorized it, they were masters of it. It is ironic, isn't it? Those that knew it best were the ones who knew all the loopholes. They knew all the areas that they could carve out for themselves sin. Look there at verse 16. Jesus here exposes their disobedience. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying... This is shorthand when he says the law and the prophets. This is shorthand for the Old Testament. And and there was was a belief that that when the Messiah came, that that we would just sort of do away with the Old Testament. That that we'd just kind of put it to bed. It, It would be done with. Even your own Bible probably testifies against you this morning. Uh, because if you looked at it, your Old Testament, uh, those pages look a lot nicer than the ones in the New Testament. Because you read the ones in the New Testament and you rarely read the ones in the Old Testament. And Jesus is confronting this idea that somehow the law is sort of put away. That it's kind of 
uh, put on the shelf, if you will. Uh, No, Jesus says, Jesus says, no, 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 it was easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In other words, that there is a new era of redemptive history. But that doesn't mean that the law of God is somehow now void. And one of the areas that they were particularly complicit in disobeying the law, well, it's there in verse 18. Look there with me. It does seem strange if you're not kind of paying attention to his argument. Like, why is this verse in there? This sort of doesn't fit, does it? It's like Jesus is calling out their love of money and talking about the law, and then all of a sudden he turns over and he says, hey, uh, don't marry divorced people. Divorce and remarriage is wrong, right? And it seems strange. But no, no, what Jesus is doing is giving an example of an area that they were disobeying the law in. The Pharisees were the ones who were giving permission for divorces, They were the ones, these rabbis, these early scribes in this particular time, were the first ones to invent no-fault divorce laws. Literally, there's writings in the the rabbinical teaching during the intertestinal period where if, if your wife cooked you a bad meal, you could get out of your marriage. Like, it just shows you the length at which they were trying to create loopholes in the Word of God. And Jesus makes clear here that everyone, look, at, look with me again, who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. God hates divorce. The Bible is clear about that. And that when someone divorces a spouse for an unbiblical reason, and those two reasons is adultery and abandonment. If you want to read more about them, 1 Corinthians 7 is a great place to go and think about it. Divorces and remarries commits adultery. And that man who goes and marries a woman who divorced from her husband for some unbiblical reason commits adultery and even in now this morning I know no doubt you're wrestling with this particular verse you see this is the problem why the church has such a hard time speaking against sexual sin like homosexuality because we've been complicit in this particular way we have been participants in no-fault divorces and unbiblical marriages, friend, how can we speak with any credibility to a culture when we ourselves never really obey God's word in this way? It is a reminder that God's word reveals how we are to live, how we are to follow Him. Even when the culture says that it's okay. Again, Jesus is making clear here. Verse 16. That the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now this is a surprising statement. But Jesus is saying here, not that people are literally prying their way into heaven or into eternal life, 
but rather he's saying, look around you. Look at all of the people coming to know me as Lord and Savior. They're they're literally pushing the door down. There's so many of them coming to faith in me. Jesus is making clear in this particular text that if they continue in their disobedience, that they themselves will find themselves outside of the kingdom of God. And Fred, I wonder this morning, what areas in your life have you been disobedient? Perhaps it is in the area of verse 18. Uh, Friend, I, I hope not to condemn you this morning, but to extend the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Perhaps you were involved in an unbiblical divorce and an unbiblical marriage. Well, friend, that doesn't mean you just, you know, get divorced again. (laughs) That perpetuates the problem. But rather that you repent and you seek the forgiveness that's in Christ. And He will welcome you with open arms into His kingdom. Friend, verse 18 is not an unforgivable sin. But it is a sin nonetheless. One that Jesus died, and forgiveness can be found. Well, then Jesus goes on to tell another parable, doesn't he? It is a strange parable, an interesting one. We are told of a rich man and a poor man. Again, we're back to money again. He tells us about a rich man who, who had abundance of things, and a poor man who had not much of anything. And it is a reminder that death is a great equalizer. They both died. The rich man could do nothing to save his life. He died just like the poor man did. And we're told that the rich man went to hell, identified here as Hades, and that the poor man went to heaven, and that he is with Abraham. And not to get lost in the weeds, you can study this more for your for yourself. We we see that the poor man is there being comforted though he himself in this life had nothing, and that the rich man, because of his unbelief, is in anguish. A couple of things. Number one, hell is real. No one in hell is saying, man, I'm glad I'm here. Isn't that how we talk about it though? Casually? It's hell on earth. Friend, there is nothing that you and I have experienced that comes close to, that, 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 that touches the horror of hell. A place that Jesus says where the worm does not die and that the flame is not quenched. A perpetual place of torment. It is nothing to joke about. It is nothing to to say that it's going to be a good time. There's nothing good about it. A place where God's wrath is particularly, perpetually poured out upon you. A place that Lazarus, or excuse me, that this rich man identifies as a place of anguish. And so he cries out and he says, Abraham, Abraham, send this man to my father's house, to my brothers. I have family and though myself is, is eternally damned because of my sin, maybe you can save them. 
And here's the point. Look at the point. It comes in verse 31. If they did not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't, didn't listen to their Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Send Lazarus back. Raise him to new life. Raise him. Let him burst out of that tomb and then have him go and tell my brothers about the gospel, about the kingdom, about the Christ who has come and the saving work that he has done. Go and tell them. And he says, friend, you see, unbelief is so settled in their hearts that even if a dead man should speak, they would not listen. I believe Luke is using a bit of irony here, isn't he? Jesus himself. Jesus was the dead man who came out of the grave and proclaimed the glories of God, and yet people still doubted. Even his own disciples doubted. Thomas doubted. And perhaps this morning you think, if I could only have seen Jesus, if I, if I could have only witnessed, if I could have only seen these miracles, then I would have believed. If I could have just been there when he was raised from the dead and he came out of that tomb and testified to the women on that resurrection Sunday, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Because belief is a miracle that apart from the Spirit's work on your heart, you would never believe. Friend, do these things characterize you? Are you characterized by these attributes of unbelief, of disobedience, and of the love of money and self-righteousness? Well, quickly, let's look at these characteristics of disciples there in verse 1 of chapter 17. Again, we're at a 30,000 foot view here, so don't grow frustrated. We can dive deeper at another time. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. The first characteristic we see is that those who are true disciples lovingly forgive. Lovingly forgive. As the camera pans back towards these disciples, Jesus uses the occasions to point out and paint a picture of the traits that should be showing up in their new life. As they have been born again and raised to new life, there, there ought to be certain characteristics showing up. And one of those here is that of repentance and forgiveness. Jesus here warns his disciples about temptation to sin and those through whom temptation comes. The woe that Jesus says uh, is by whom they come. He warns them of the fate of those who tempt God's children to sin. And therefore, in verse 3, he says, pay attention to yourself. The Christian life is characterized by a watchfulness over sin in themselves and outside of themselves. And Jesus drives home this this 
characteristic of repentance and forgiveness. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, now let's camp here for just a moment. A number of things we, we notice. Number one, Christians sin. Christians sin. Now, now I know this is surprising to hear, uh, but it is true, isn't it? We, we sin every day. Every day we do things, we say things, we act in rebellion against our God. And so Jesus expects Christians will struggle with sin. But notice here, secondly, that it is the responsibility of other Christians to call you out when you sin. If a brother sins, what does it say? What does Jesus command them to do? Rebuke him. Rebuke him. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pause. I, I thought we weren't supposed to judge one another. I, I thought that we weren't supposed to, you know, pry into one another's lives. I thought we were just to, you know, sort of ignore these things. No, no, no. You see, as Christians, it ought to be a regular activity where we see a brother or sister caught in sin, how unkind would it be for us just to leave them in that place? No, no, no. We are to call them out, rebuke them. He doesn't say condemn them. He doesn't say, oh, they're unforgivable. Oh, there's no, really, no hope of redemption here. No, to rebuke them. Friend, you've sinned. Come back to Jesus. Similarly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, if your brother sins against you, go to him. First tell him his fault, then come and offer your gift of worship. Christians ought to cultivate a relationship in the life of the local church where we do not allow sin to perpetuate. If someone is gossiping to you, friend, we ought not to participate in that, but rebuke it. If someone is caught and ensnared in sin, we ought to call them out in that, but extend to them the grace that is in Christ. Not condemnation, but grace. And that's what we see happen here. This individual then repents. But then, if he repents, the responsibility is to forgive. I think Jesus is painting a picture here of someone who is being sinned against. And perhaps because you've been in church with other sinners, you've been hurt by other Christians. And Jesus here is exhorting us to patience and perseverance. If someone sins against you seven times in a day, now this is quite unlikely, but let's say it does happen, Jesus says, we ought to forgive him if he repents. And I want you to notice it's conditional on repentance. This is not merely forgiving for forgiving's sake, but it's forgiving a repenter. If someone is unwilling to turn from their sin, Jesus doesn't say forgive them. No, no, forgiveness is conditional upon their repentance. We must go on. Verses 5 and 6, we see that as Christians, we ought to be characterized by a growing faith. No doubt the disciples are wrestling with Jesus' teaching, as you are right now. How am I going to forgive someone seven times? That seems to be quite exhausting. And so they cry out to the Lord, increase our faith. But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't answer their prayer. 
They cry out to Him, Lord, give us more faith. Give it to us. Give us more of it. Because if we had more of it, then we would be able to obey you. Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll give you more faith. What does He do? He says, the faith that you already possess is sufficient. It's a sufficient faith. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be rooted up, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, of course, the prosperity gospel preachers, uh, this is the verse that is on their walls at home and tattooed on their foreheads. That if I just had more faith, I could name something, claim something, and then it will happen. A big mulberry tree, deep roots, like going to one of these old oaks and just saying, get up out of the ground and throw it into the lake. This is where they get some of their false theology from. But that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus' point isn't that we have the ability to speak to objects and move them like some master Jedi, but that our faith is sufficient. That if you have been born again, you have been given the ability to believe, that ability is sufficient. You don't need another dose, a second blessing. You have enough. It is meant to encourage us that the littlest faith is sufficient to save. And no doubt many of us in this room have faith at a greater or lesser quantity. But if you have saving faith, it is sufficient faith. It is a characteristic of a disciple. We ought to expect Christians to have faith. Lastly, Christians ought to be characterized by obedience. Jesus concludes with this teaching by telling them a parable. Will any of you who has a servant, verse 7, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come to the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, you are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. This is perhaps one of the least encouraging passages Jesus has ever told. Maybe perhaps you look at this and say, wow, Jesus, that way to deflate the moment. I mean, I thought I had faith that I could move mulberry trees in the ocean And here you come alongside and say, hey, when you do something great, when you obey, when you sacrificially give, when you serve in the nursery and deal with all those little snotty kids, and and you're like, I did something good for God, and you kind of start getting puffed up and begin to pat yourself on the back because of how awesome you are, Jesus says, does a servant get praised for obeying? Does a slave get a congratulations because they did something great? Do they get to sit with the master and and feast? Jesus says, no. The master says, get to work. I'm hungry. Give me some food. 
I know you've been outside all day working. I know you've been tirelessly giving yourself in the field, but your job is not done. You have more to do. Then you can eat. In other words, Jesus says that we ought not to put terms and conditions on our service. We don't serve Jesus to get a pat on the back. We serve Jesus because we are servants, slaves of Christ. And we are merely doing our duty as slaves of Christ. Oh, you thought that you were a free man? No, no, no. You just transferred your ownership from one master to another. And Jesus is our master. And we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. We ought not to expect a prize for our faithfulness. Oh, there are treasures that we will enjoy in heaven, but here on earth we are not promised earthly blessings. It is quite striking, isn't it, uh, that the word of faith false teachers use verses 5 and 6 to sort of shore up their, their false teaching. But yet if you would just read a little bit further, Jesus undermines that teaching by saying, when you are obedient, you will not be blessed with material possessions. When you do something like give a lot of money, doesn't mean that God is going to somehow double that money as if you're um, gambling it or something of that nature. But rather that you are merely an unworthy servant. You've done only what is your duty. Mary J. Harris says it this way, a slave is someone whose person and service wholly belongs to another. As Christ purchased possession, the Christian is wholly devoted to the person of the master. As Christ's movable property, the Christian is totally available for the master's use. This complete devotion involves a humble submission to the person of Christ. It involves an acknowledgement that the Supreme Lord, He alone has absolute and exclusive rights to the will, affection, and energy now and forever. Uh, friend, are you devoted to Christ unconditionally? What an amazing description of those who are in Christ. We are servants of the Most High God. Are you wholly devoted to Christ? doing whatever the Master tells you to do. These are the characteristics that we ought to see show up in our lives, characterized by our willingness to forgive when someone sins against us. A willingness to be rebuked when we are ensnared in sin, not out of uh, condemnation, but out of love known for our pursuit of biblical reconciliation and not condemnation. Perhaps this morning you are struggling with the amount of faith you have. You, you think that your faith is insufficient. From the littlest amount of faith, as small as a mustard seed, it is sufficient faith. And it will save. Friend, true disciples of Christ are known for these things. Their life is characterized by them. But friend, maybe perhaps this morning you're characterized more by your self-righteousness, your disobedience, your lack of submission to the clear teachings of Christ. Perhaps you're marked 
by an unwillingness to forgive others. Mind clouded with doubt rather than assurance of faith. Friend, there is no amount of good works you can ever do to be saved. Our salvation is not based on our own merits, but solely on the merits of Christ and His atoning sacrifice. Friend, a a genuine believer is marked by these things. They are servants of Christ. Do not be like Erasmus, who knew all these wonderful things about God, but did, did not have saving knowledge of the one true and living God. Our obedience, even our faith, is insufficient. We trust in the finished work of Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. Father, help us, I pray, to forget everything that we've heard, which is unhelpful. And to remember your saving work for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as our deacons and Pastor Brett comes to help pass out the